Welcome to the Sports Spectrum Podcast, where faith and sports collide. Here's your host, Jason Romano. This is episode number 80 of the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Welcome everyone to the show. My name is Jason Romano. It is great to have you joining us here on the program today. Truly incredible that we've made it to 80 episodes. We have over 150,000 downloads of this podcast, and we could not have done it without your support. So thank you so much for supporting Sports Spectrum and supporting all of what we have done with these podcasts and just trying to reach people with inspirational stories and intersecting the world of sports and of faith. As always, you can download this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, everywhere podcasts are found. And of course, all of our content is available at sportspectrum.com where you can become a member. You can subscribe to our uh, our magazine and become a member of the Sports Spectrum family. It's $36. That's it. $36 gets you a subscription to Sports Spectrum and become a member of our family. It gets you our quarterly magazine as well as helping to fund our podcasts and the content that you read at sportspectrum.com. $36. Go over to sportspectrum.com and become a member of the Sports Spectrum family. All right. Today's guest, his name is Earl Smith. He is the Golden State Warriors and San Francisco 49ers team chaplain. Now, he is the youngest chaplain ever hired by the California Department of Corrections as a chaplain at San Quentin, one of America's most notorious prisons in 1983. This story is incredible. And I was uh, tipped on this story. And I was told about this story by a good friend of mine, Brian Doobie, who read uh, this book that Reverend Earl had written, Death Row Chaplain. Death Row Chaplain, unbelievable true stories from America's most notorious prison. And he said, Jason, when you read this, you're going to want to talk to Reverend Earl. And he was right. And we finally got a chance to hook up with uh, Reverend Earl Smith. And wow, I think you're just going to be blown away by the stories that you hear in this podcast. It's about 45 minutes to an hour long. I'm telling you, the man's life is incredible. And it starts when he was young. Uh, he was grew up as part of a gang in Stockton, California, and it takes him all the way to where he is now, still serving and uh, being a chaplain and helping others, especially in the world of sports. And I just can't wait for you guys to hear this. So let's get right to it. He is Earl Smith, Reverend Earl Smith, Golden State Warriors and San Francisco 49ers team chaplain, author of the book Death Row Chaplain, right here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Take a listen. Reverend Smith, welcome to the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited about the conversation. Yeah, should be great. Let's start right with the, the sports angle first. Now, you are, as I said, the chaplain of both the Warriors and the 49ers in the NFL. Let's start in the NBA and currently being the chaplain of the defending NBA champion, the Golden State Warriors. Take us to what that and job tales. How does a a chaplain of the NBA's best team sort of minister to his players. What's that look like? Basically, you look at them in awe and you think, wow, look what God has created, <laughs> that you could have so many young men that come from so many different parts of the country that come together on one accord. When you think about all the dissension that there may be in the country, these guys all have one focus from the coach, from the GM on down. And you see them work together for that common goal. And really, in ministry, that's what you want. You want to see people come together and work for one goal. And so working with the guys, having chapel service with them, lunch or whatever it may be, 
away from the facility or, you know, that I had to do a marriage for one of the guys. Uh, and when I, whenever those things happen, it's not just one guy. They support each other. So for me, just that part is it's exciting. What does that look like from a from a day-to-day standpoint for you, though? Or is it not a day-to-day standpoint, being the team chaplain of the Warriors and what your role entails? Well, it's, for the Warriors, it's a little different than for the 49ers. For the Warriors, we we have chapel service on the day of the game, 60 minutes before the game. You go about 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, before you get there, you're actually you – ta- you, you make an outline of the chapel. The guys don't have Bibles, so you have a – and for basketball chapel, it's different because you do both teams together in the same room. And so you have the message sort of typed out in an outline form and have it on the chair when they get there. But before I do that, I also go around the arena and share the outlines with the ushers, the police officers, and the other staff uh, because there's a lot of believers that work there, and that's our – you know, so the outreach for me is not just to those 15 players that are the Warriors. It's also for the arena. So I get there early to be able to reach out to the workers in the arena. And then I may have a player that needs to see me after he does a shoot-around. And so we have a separate time for that. So when they get in for chapel, if it's just them, sometimes we don't get as much time because they're talking and telling jokes and uh, they're telling me about something someone did and I'm laughing, they're laughing. And you know, for me, that's all part of the ministry also to see these guys that are getting ready to go into a game and they're uh, sort of joking with each other. We have one guy that played for us and he's on a different team now. And when he comes and plays, you know, before I ask for prayer requests and the guys always chime in and says what his is. And it's a fun time. And, you know, it's I'll tell you who he is. He's Richard Jefferson. He played for the Cavaliers and he played for us before that, and now he's with uh, Denver. So he came to town, and I looked at him, and we said a prayer request. We said humility, and uh, one of the guys that was there was trying to figure out why we said that and laughed, and he explained that in the first time we had a championship against the Cavaliers, um, he and Harrison Barnes, they were sitting together, and that was the prayer. That was a request. So He's been making that the same request that he will not, nothing will get bigger than the fact that God has blessed him to be there. So that's sort of what we do in chapel. That's pretty awesome. Now, obviously, you know, the probably most famous player on the team, you could argue Kevin Durant, is certainly Steph Curry. And Steph has always sort of been unashamed about his faith. He's never hid from the fact that he grew up in a Christian home and loves the Lord. I wonder what kind of relationship you have with him and how you encourage him. Uh, I think with Steph as well as with the other guys on the team, it's, it's more of an individual outreach. And with Steph, uh, his his base is solid because his family, when he got there, they made sure the base was solid. Uh, in fact, he was a member of uh, one of my associates' church back in Charlotte, Central Church of God, hmm. and so and he grew up in that church and. Pro athletes that played for the Hornets or played for uh, the Panthers also attended there. So he grew up, and they and that was where that's really where he met Aisha. That's where the foundation came from. So in Steph, with Steph, you want to basically try to get him to talk about other things. His basketball is what he does, but that's not who he is. 
I mean, he has so many other things going on in his mind. He has so many other issues and things that are important to him besides just playing basketball. Yet he realizes that God has blessed him with a platform that's called basketball. You also are a chaplain with the San Francisco 49ers. So football being different than basketball, Reverend Earl, tell me about your job and what it entails with the 49ers and what that looks like compared to what you do with the Warriors. Well, with the 49ers, I'm actually at the office more. Uh, in the off season, if they're getting ready to draft someone, I may be asked to go to some city and sit and interview a guy for a day and, and just sort of see what he fits, how he would fit in the position room with the guys they're going to draft. I, uh, they have 30 guys that they bring in um, pre-draft. I interview them all. I sort of do an analysis on them and write it up. And So I, I actually get to sort of meet the young guys ahead of time. Uh, I work with the young guys, work with the old guys. and So I'm, I'm, I'm here more than just game day as I would would be with the Warriors. Um, and then it's all see then there's also times when I'm just going to sit down with a guy and his wife or his girlfriend and we're working through some relational issues. So I live in Stockton and uh have a car with three year old car with ninety eighty eighty one thousand miles. <laughs> if a guy if a guy has uh an issue. It's really my deal to drive to wherever he is and try to work through it with him. So a lot of times uh, with the 49ers, I'm on the road just working with guys and trying to get them to a better point of clarity with what they really should be doing as athletes, as men, first of all, godly men, then as athletes, and then if they're as a husband or son. Uh, so those are the things I do. And I'm so I do it Three or four days a week, I'm in the facility working with guys. Uh, off season, I'm still here working with guys. This weekend, uh, I have a transition house for guys that are getting out of prison, and so I have a bunch of players that are driving to the house, and we're building a fence. So you know, that's you think, well, why? Because that's an outreach that they're doing, sharing of themselves with guys who just got out of prison which is my other love, and so I combine them together and you get this perfect situation where guys are working next to each other that they would think never would they never have a relationship or a conversation with them, and they're building a fence. So we, we're tearing down the old one and putting a new one up, and we're going to do it all together. We have these guys that are going to work together on it. That's awesome. That's so fascinating to me that you as a chaplain and, and the 49ers look at, not that I wouldn't think they would, but they look at your job as more than just, you know, a chaplain. You're actually a sort of a player evaluator in a lot of ways and working with guys who, who they're bringing in for the draft. That's, I don't think that's common among teams in the league, is it? Well, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a player evaluator and I make sure I tell people that what I do is, uh, I used some of the skills that I had from working in the prison, from growing up in the streets, and what I what I actually try to do is get to know a guy, and based on getting to know him, consider how he would fit with other guys, and if he would be a fit for hmm. what we consider the 49er way. Uh, so it's not evaluating him as much as it's just getting to know a guy, it's sort of 
sometimes in a in a short time when they're seeing a guy at the combine, they're they're running around back and forth, 258, 60 guys. Uh, you get them for a little longer, and you can actually you start to ask them about where they grew up at, what friends they had, their family, some other associations, and you can put you can build a story from what they share. And when you see that you know. A lot of times the tapestry, when you look at the front of it, you say it's beautiful. When you turn it over, there's just a lot of thread that looks really weird. And for me, I, I want to turn it over because I want to make the weird-looking thread look real as well. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's interesting to me that um, maybe you don't call it player evaluating. Maybe it's just personality, relationship sort of building. But has that been the same through all the different regimes, you know, the 49ers have obviously have different regimes over the past few years, especially with coaches, but even more with, with a guy like John Lynch coming in. Tell me about how your role has changed or has it really kind of been the same through all the different regimes? I, I think it's, I, I think, uh, I, I believe that it's, it's sort of evolved into some other things. Uh, uh, there's been, see, there's been off seasons when I, my wife and I will just take – we're on the road for three weeks visiting players, uh, just checking in with them to see how they are. And that was, you know, Mike Nolan, unbelievable guy, unbelievable coach. When he was here, Scott McLuhan uh, followed through with that, Trent Baalke, uh John Lynch. I mean, you think of a guy that has never done a job, and he comes in and – but he played the game, and because he plays the game, he played the game. He has a real understanding of what it takes for men to survive and make it to the next level. So I, I'm just I'm blessed that he's here and I can so I'm learning from him in terms of his thought process because he's thinking like he was a player and what a player needs. And so it's been a real great opportunity and you got a guy like Kyle Shanahan who grew up in football seeing things, seeing his father coach and seeing the players respond to how his father did it. So you bring those two guys together and it's it's an amazing opportunity that I have today. Yet I also I always compare and I always compare with Coach Singletary and what I did with him and, you know, the work we did for players and trying to reshape some of their lives. So in each case there's a different model that takes place and i just think the newest mo the new model with john and kyle is, is exciting to be here for that absolutely now uh we're talking to earl smith here the uh team chaplain for the warriors and the 49ers he's also the author of the book death road chaplain now just that title alone sucks you in right death road chaplain and the subtitle is unbelievable true stories from america's most notorious prison a buddy of mine brian doobie gave me this book to read a couple months ago and i could not put it down and i said wow this guy is has lived such an amazing crazy life we got to get him on the podcast so i really want to hear and talk a lot about your story here on the second half of this podcast so let's start um with the book and where you had the idea of writing you know the stories where that came from because we're going to talk about the stories in a minute just but the idea of putting together the book you know, my father was my best friend. He passed away uh, a few years ago, and I promised him I'd write a book about my experiences because I believe that some of the things that I've encountered and gone through, other people have, and they also need to understand that you can go through some real ruts, and God is there also. And, you know, I've been through a lot of valleys in my life, 
as I grew up, and my dad kept pointing to the mountain, saying that there, son of this valley, there's a mountain. Son of this valley, there's a mountain. My dad was my hero. He once he was my baseball coach, and I, I made an error in a game that we lost. I get in the car. I could only call him coach on the field. I get in the car. I'm crying. He says, what's wrong? I said, I made an error. He says, what did you do? And I'm yelling, I made an error. We lost. And he was very calm. He said, Sawdust is a name for it. You're not the first one to do it. <laughs> and I was 10 years old when he told me that. Yeah. And I never forgot that conversation because what he was really telling me is don't allow your mistakes to define you. That's good. It's so really good. That's sort of where the book came from. That's really good. Now, your story is incredible. Let's let's dive into it and start with, in the beginning, you you write a lot about your, your childhood and your youth and growing up and, and some really tough areas and some tough times. But I want to start with the moment that you share about how you almost didn't make it past your 20th birthday. Could you share that story? And then we'll kind of dive into your, the rest of that. Oh, yeah. It was in October. Um... I was a drug dealer, gang member, and I had people selling drugs for me. And a guy owed me some money, and he was sort of distant, trying to hide from me. And so I put the word out: if I see him, I had to do something to him, mm. because you know that's what that's what the streets were. And so I'm playing golf. I get home early because I want to watch the World Series. It's the Red Sox and the Reds, and I leave my golf bag in the car because I'm hurrying to turn the television on. I get a knock at the door. It's this guy that owes me the money. has a stranger with him. I tell him, come on in because i got to figure out what I'm going to say and do to this guy to make an example. And while I'm sitting there watching the game, not really speaking to him, the guy that he brings with him, he signals him like he moves his finger like he's, like he's pulling the trigger. The guy gets up and just starts shooting me. So he shot me six times, uh, stood over my body, kept clicking the gun to make sure it was empty. And the guy that brought him there says, okay, come on, let's go. He's done. Uh, I watched him leave. And when they left, I, I was able to get up. And I, I was living in duplex. I, I reached across the banister and knocked on my neighbor's door and said, you need to call the police. I've been shot. Uh, what I didn't realize, I was under surveillance, so the police were on the corner in an unmarked car. They showed up. They came in and left. As they were leaving, the lady says, where's the ambulance? Where's the ambulance? They said, lady, if you want an ambulance, you call an ambulance. Another set of police came in. They walked by me. They left. Still no ambulance. And uh, So the third set of cops that came in, they confiscated the evidence. Ambulance finally came, and... Uh, it took me to the hospital. Wow. How much time is in between there, between the time that you get shot and the time you end up at the hospital? Oh, probably between 15 and 30 minutes. Wow. And what was the Somewhere status like, like when you got there? What was the status when you got there? Well, when I got there, Dr. James Morris, he looked at me and he says, uh, you're going to die. Tell the police who did it. And I remember looking at him and laughing, like, what do you mean, tell? You know, and sometimes you can get so ingrained and so caught up in the stupidity of life that you become part of that stupidity. And I thought I did not want to die with someone saying I told. Uh, it didn't make a difference because I wouldn't know what they said anyway. Uh, but that's what my position was, and he, he looked at me and says, I don't know what's wrong with you people. He walked away. What I didn't realize, another guy I knew had been shot a year before that, 
went to the same hospital. Dr. Morrissey said the same thing to him. He laughed and he died while he was laughing. Mm. So Dr. Morrissey, in a sense, was reliving a moment when I came in, and I didn't realize it. Wow. So you, I'm just trying to process all that. So you, you survive, obviously, because we're talking here today. Tell me about what happens after how you survived and then what that did to you, both, I guess, from a faith perspective and then just from a human perspective on the sanctity of life. Like, tell us, first of all, how you survived and, and what, uh, how you made it out alive. Well, after I told him that, you know, I looked at him, I laughed. He said, "What? Well, I don't know what's wrong with you. My father walks in, and he grabs the doctor, comes back, and he says, how bad is he? And my, he tells my doc, my dad he's not going to make it. And my dad oh, grabs this guy and says, you better do what you do best, and I'm going to go do what I do best. Mm-hmm. And my father went away to pray, and they left me on the gurney by myself. And... I hear this voice say, you're not going to die. I have something for you to do. You're going to be a chaplain at San Quentin Prison. And, you know, I'm shot six times. I'm on a gurney. Now I'm laughing. Because it's ludicrous that I would be doing anything. Plus, why would Jesus or Lord want to speak to me? And I knew it was. I had gone to church. I understood the voice. I just couldn't understand why that voice would want to speak to a guy that was as bad as I was and had done all the things I'd done. The doctor thought I was going into shock. He comes back in. I said, if I tell you where the bullets are, will that help? Hmm. And he says, no. And so I pointed at my nose because when you're shot, you sort of swell up. And uh, so I pointed at my nose where one of the bullets had gone in and it lodged right by my eye and the bleeding stopped. I pointed at my neck. Bleeding stopped. I pointed at my shoulder. Bleeding stopped. Everywhere I pointed, the bleeding stopped. The doctor didn't know what was going on. So I had seven holes in me because one bullet had gone in and come out and went back in. And that's the one that's on top of my heart right now. Because hmm. uh, it stopped right at my heart. And the doctor didn't understand what was going on. So of the seven holes, he sewed up one. The rest of them closed up on their own. And the bleeding stopped. <laughs> Holy cow. That's an incredible story. And that's just the tip of what we're about to talk about. But you, in many ways, you shouldn't be here. Six times you're shot in the, you know, point blank in front. Tell me about uh, when you walk out of that hospital, I guess, for the first time and kind of what what was happening to you? Were you did you have this new sense of renewed faith maybe in Christ? Did you have this new sense no, of just no, second but, chance? No. You know, what was it? My dad, three days later, I, I was there. I, was, I got out of the hospital. So literally from being shot to three days later, my father took me home uh, to his house. He put me in my old bed. He set a chair by the door, and he sat there with a gun guarding me. Wow. And until I was healthy enough and strong enough to try to leave on my own. And he talked to me whenever I was awoke. And... The only time I, I don't know if he ever left because if I went to sleep and I woke up, my dad would be back in that chair hmm. guarding me and uh, protecting me. And I kept thinking about what I heard the Lord say to me, yet I also I realized this guy did something to me and I got to get him back. Um, the thing is, when this encounter happened, I know there was something that left me. I, didn't, I never cared about dying. 
that I mean, my life was so weird growing up as a kid. I always thought that, you know, dying would be a relief. Hmm. And so I never cared about it. I never, when I went into fights or fights, shooting or whatever it was, I didn't care. And after getting shot and hearing that voice, I started to care, and it was scary because I didn't know how to describe caring. Wow. And, and But I did. There was something that happened different, so the guy turned himself in, um, went to court. I didn't want to testify against him because I wanted him on the street so I could kill him. Hmm. Uh, Played play guilty, and now I'm on the streets. The guy's in jail, and I'm no, I'm not the same guy that was on the street before I got shot. And I tried to act like I was. The reality is, once you have a true encounter with the Lord, you're not the same. Hmm. I was no longer that guy that could go sell the drugs or carry the gun, and I just wasn't that guy. And and then I found out that this guy was on the streets. The other guy was, and I was getting ready to go kill him. And I had a friend that was a minister. He was. 19 years old, he started preaching when he was 17. He comes by my house and says, hey, I'm preaching tonight. I want you to go to church with me. I said, okay, I'll meet you there because I just wanted him out of my house so I could go and get this guy. And he says, no, I'm going to stay here until you get dressed and I'm going to drive you. I said, no, I can handle it. He says, no, you need to go with me. He did not know what my plan was, but I went to church with him that night, sat in the first row, heard him preach, and rededicated my life to the Lord that night. Wow. That's an incredible story. Now, you say when you were in the hospital, you hear that voice telling you that you're going to go be a chaplain in the prison. So take us to the moment when you realize that you are and how you become a chaplain, because I guess you don't just walk into a prison and say, hey, I'm here. I'm available to be a chaplain. Who wants to hire me? Like, tell me how that process took place. It was, it was really it was really weird because I graduated from Bishop College in Dallas, got hired with the Boy Scouts. I come to California, so they paid me to come back home. I'm working for the Boy Scouts. I'm three years into the Boy Scouts. I'm part of the Kiwana Service Club. A guy that's with the Salvation Army comes in a meeting one day and says, hey, didn't you say you want to be a chaplain at San Quentin? <laughs> I said, I don't remember saying it. Said, yeah, that's true. And he says, well, there's an opening. He said, they're going to hire someone else, but you should apply. I said, okay. Three weeks later, he comes back and says, did you ever get the application? I said, no, not yet. He says, I didn't think so. Here, fill it out. <laughs> I fill the application out. I send it in. Time goes by. I get a letter back. Dear Reverend Smith, we're sorry to inform you that you don't meet the minimum qualifications. I take the paper. I ball it up. The Lord quickens my spirit, tells me, go get that paper. You call that number and ask them what you need to do to be qualified. And I called the state personnel board, and for some reason they had sent me the wrong letter. And there's a pause on the phone, and then the lady says, Reverend Smith, we're really sorry. You are qualified. We sent you the wrong letter. Wow. So, That's so the had beginning. I not listened to that same voice that I heard when I got shot that told me to go get that piece of paper and make that call a lot of things would have been different in my life but a lot of it is just being in tune to the call but also having an association with the call and by that point I'm in the ministry and you know so things have changed in my life and I had understood the importance of relationship I call 
I go to the interview, this guy's interview, and he says, you're here for San Quentin? I said, yeah. He says, well, I'm getting a job already. You probably don't even need to be here. I said, well, I'll just need to, I need to practice. I just need to understand how the interview process works. They hired him five months later. That he didn't make probation. They let him go. They called me and asked me, was I still interested in the job? Hmm. And went to the prison, did my interview, and the day I interviewed, two people were two people were killed while they interrupted my interview twice because two inmates were killed. Oh my gosh! And and I was thinking, okay, God, okay, what do you do? When I was a kid, I used to listen on the radio with my brother. This little trans, remember the little transistor radios we have? Oh yeah. So I had this little transistor radio, and if I set it in the right spot, whenever there was an execution at San Quentin, my brother and I would listen to the the news, sort of broadcasting the situation. There was a guy from Stockton that was executed. We listened to that. So I, San Quentin was always that place where you didn't want to go, and yet here I was. Wow. And they says right on your book, America's most notorious prison. So take us inside the prison. I mean, I guess I don't even want to guess. I I would think that because of your experiences before when you were shot and just the kind of lifestyle that you were living, did you sort of relate to some of the guys, maybe all the guys that were in there a little bit better than just a guy who's a pastor who's coming in sort of preaching the word? Is that kind of how it helped you acclimate yourself into being this chaplain and then the most notorious prison in the U.S. I was I was uh, being in a church a, lo a local church setting was what you're supposed to do with ministry. Yet I always knew that I was not comfortable there. I was able to do it. I was able to fulfill the mission. I was able to help people. I was able to be a youth pastor. I did all that, but yet at the same time, I knew my real calling was to work with people like me, and. When I got into San Quentin, people say I the, how the gate slammed. I don't remember any of that. I just remember I got my ID. I went through orientation. I went to my. I walked through the plaza to get to my office, and I was working. I was at San Quentin. I was where I was supposed to be, and the inmates were all around. And I all I I just remember talking to them, having a conversation. They were like, "Oh, you're the youth chaplain," and they try to ask you a bunch of questions and make you think they can intimidate you back then and I was just like this is great man because it's almost like me living in my neighborhood so <laughs> it, it was pretty cool and but but the bigger picture was I knew that's where I needed to be there was not a doubt in my mind that that voice that said to me in 75 when I got shot had made it possible in 83 for me to be where I was well you explained sort of the role of a chaplain with the Niners and the Warriors. What does a prison chaplain look like? Like, what are you doing inside the prison as your position? Is it relationship building? Is it praying? Is it teaching the word of God? Is it all of it? Tell us about what that looks like. Uh, it's all of it. And <laughs> I tell chaplains that I would train that, and the biggest part is not staying in your office. The biggest part of ministry in prison is not being in the chapel. The biggest part of ministry is being in the cell blocks. When I went to work there, they were locked down 13 out of the first 16 months I was there. My job was to go in and make relationships with guys who couldn't get out of their cells, try to make them understand who I was. Uh, there were people that I knew there. There were people that I grew up with there. Yet my job was to try to reach out to them in such a way to share um, share the possibilities of Christ. I 
I, I started helping coach the inmate football team when they finally came off a of lockdown because I realized my job was not that building. My job was the prison. Uh, some years later, I started the inmate baseball team because I love baseball. It's the best sport in the world. You can be a failure seven out of ten times and still be considered a success. <laughs> it taught guys in prison how not to deal with their failures but look at their successes. So we built a baseball field. So my ministry became all these guys that would never come to chapel are now playing baseball or watching the game. And so I had this larger arena than my chapel could hold, sharing sharing my presence as a representative of what Christ could be. So uh, that for me was, that that's what a chaplain does. A chaplain tries to do relational a building in such a way that other people find hope in how you develop a race. Maybe it's not even with the guy that you're speaking to. It's another guy that's watching because inmates watch. And But it's relational. It's re- I mean, I played racquetball with the guys. I had my own racquetball, my, all, my, all my own stuff in the gym. I'd go play basketball with them. My pastor, Donald Green, every Thursday he'd come in. We'd go to the upper yard. We'd play dominoes. And if we beat guys, the deal was if we beat you, you have to come to church. Hmm. And so, you know, all the guys would be hoorah and hooting and hollering. And we get guys who never would come to church that wanted to beat us in dominoes. They come to church. So uh, that was how I did it. And you know, but it was really weird. The thing I'll tell you as you ask the question, I was there only about four or five months, and so I'm Christmas time. I'm giving out these Christmas cards, and I saw the guy that shot me. I had only seen him twice. I saw him when he was at my house and he shot me. I saw him in court when I wouldn't testify against him. Now he's in a cell, and he's in a cell about around people that I knew that didn't know he was the guy who shot me. And I remember that was really the point where I understood again about relationship with Christ. As I saw this guy, the devil says, okay, just tell someone he's the guy that shot you, and they'll take him out. You don't have to ask them to. They'll do it just because they think that that's a good thing to do to, for you. Right. And I remember walking down that tier and I was crying. I was crying like a baby. Tears just flowing down my eyes. Uh, Christmas time, I'm giving out Christmas cards, and all I could do is stick them out to guys. I couldn't talk to them. And guys are saying, what's wrong, Smitty? What's wrong? What? I couldn't really talk. I couldn't tell them that that guy that was back there had hurt me the way he did. Yet I had to pass back by him to get off his tear. And when I did, I looked at him and I said, I need to say something to you. I need to thank you because God used you to get to me. Um, And what I realized that for eight years I thought I was better, I was okay, but I was still harboring all the effects of what that guy had done to me. And when I was able to finally see him, my release was in seeing him and being able to say thank you. Hardest thing to do is say Thank you for the lesson I learned because it was a hard lesson, but it benefited me in the long term. Uh, he thought I would. He just thought I was going to have him killed once I knew he was there. Wrote a letter to the warden. Got to get me out of this prison. The chaplain's going to have me killed, and hmm. they put him in a bed. They called me in and said, "Do you know this inmate?" I said, "I had to tell him. Yeah, he shot me." And they knew I'd gone through all that. They knew my record. They knew my file. And you know they, you know they could have done me like they did the guy before me and said we're not going to uh, let you pass probation. You have to leave. We're not firing you. Just never got hired officially. Hmm. Instead, they put him in a special transport and got him out of prison. That was another sign that God had really said that's where you should be. 
Wow. Whatever happened to him? Do you know what ever happened to him? No, I do not. No. I, well, I can tell you, one of the things I know happened to him is another guy I know was having a shootout on a bus, and one of the bullets he ricocheted and shot that guy, partially paralyzed him. And, you know, people for people thought I asked the guy that I was having the guy do, and I had nothing to do with it. But so I don't know whatever happened to the guy, other than I know he got shot. Your your book is is titled Death Row Chaplain. So let's talk about Death Row for a minute, because obviously you're building relationships and ministering to people who are on death row. What does that look like? And uh, you write extensively in the book of, about some experiences with people who. Um, who've gone through and, and had to been killed through the death penalty. Talk, take us through what death row is and just how you minister to people who are there in that spot. Well, condemned row is where they, they'll they send a guy after he's sentenced to death. Uh, and when they when he gets there, they're sort of like different sections of the prison that they start in. Uh, my job, When I first got there, I think it was like, 91 people on death row. When I left, it was about 650. Um, but my job was to get to know that individual and understand and make him understand whatever your crime is, that was your crime, but that's not your name. And when you see me, I want to see you as who your name is because that's the only way I can work with you. If you want to live out your crime and be that thing, then I can't work with you. And my job was to be a man of hope in a situation. Death row is a place of finality. And there's so many people that lose hope when they they deal with the uh, question of finality. For me, ministering on death row, it was always a sense of there's hope there. And hope does not mean you're going to get off death row. Although I had eight guys that were on my caseload that eventually went home. They're on the streets from death row. But hope for me means that there's something beyond this cell, there's something beyond this prison, there's something beyond the gas chamber or the execution chamber, and that something is heaven. And that is what hope is. If you look at Titus, they say, you know, in the book of Titus, they talk about, and he once was this and this, and he sort of moves and there's a translation, and it gets to the point of hope eternal hope. And for me, that's what I try to talk to guys about. There is hope beyond this place. Have you seen situations where some have accepted Christ before they've been put to death? Have you gone through that? And if so, is there a story you can share? Uh, yeah, I mean, the first guy executed was a guy named Robert Alton Harris, and he was on my caseload from the time I arrived. And I remember the night of his execution, uh, we were playing domino. We played chess that night. We were playing chess, and he asked me to go ask one of the families of the victims would they forgive him because the other family had said yes, but we still want you to be executed. He had written to both families, and I went to go see the lady, and I said, you know, I introduced myself, and I said, Robbie wants me to ask you, will you forgive him? And he, she said no, and tell him I said no. And I went back there to where we were because the holy cell for an execution is sort of this isolated area. You're, there's a wall that separates you in the chamber, and you're in a cell. And uh, phone on the wall, television that you can sort of look at the television. There's a desk where you can get your food, where you can reach out your hand to the cell to get what you want to eat. 
And I'm sitting there. When I came back and told him that, he just sort of sat down and collapsed on the mattress because he couldn't understand. He was taking, he took responsibility for his crime. When he was just saying, will you forgive me? He said at this point he had made a decision to accept Christ in his life, and he had made he was he had done some things to the best of his ability to make amends, to try to make the fact that he was different. He did not ask not to be executed. He clearly understood that he took two people's lives, and uh, Stephen Baker, Michael Mieski, and and they he deserved in his mind, to be executed. It's not the execution process. My process is the Christ relationship that you have a place you can go beyond that chair that mm. you're going to sit in. And as we were walking him in, he looks at me, and they had had a delay because they wanted to see if uh, it was cruel and unusual punishment, so they had to get a video camera in the chamber. And as I'm walking him in, he says to me, he says, you know what, Smitty? If everything you ever told me is real, then there's going to be a white hearse waiting for me outside afterwards. And those were his last words to me, and I was thinking, a white hearse. And I stood there while they strapped him in the chair. I stood there while they turned the door on the cylinder to make sure the door was firmly in place. I stood there while they pulled the lever that dropped a, a side item to the acid. I, I stood there and watched all of that. I, I watched the process. I heard when they said they finally announced him uh, he was officially dead. I heard a cheer go up. They all left out of that execution chamber. And the guy that was running the camera, he left, and so the little red light is still flickering like they're recording him while he's dead. Nothing else is going to happen. He's dead. Mm. And I couldn't, and, and, you know, and I just started to cry like, God, what is this all about? And so it was just me, him, and that camera. And then when I finally said, okay, I got to go, there's people, you know, that were on the execution team I have to go minister to, or there's people I got to go minister to. And I was just asking God to give me strength. And I opened the door, and when I opened the door to leave the, the chamber area, there's this white minivan out front. The mortician, the mortuary did not have the wagon van, the hearse that they were looking for, and so they sent this white minivan. And that was what they sent to get Robbie. Hmm. And I remember what he said. And it was almost like God says, I'm with you in every situation. I'm even with you when it looks like it's so bleak. Trust me. And there was this white there was this white hearse minivan, and that's what Robbie had said. He says, If everything you said is real, that's what's gonna be waiting for me. And and they borrowed it from another mortuary. It shouldn't have even been there. But that was the one that was there outside the door when I walked out. And that was my assurance that God was present. I walked into the official witness room, and this lady that I'd asked to just say, tell Robbie you'll forgive him. And she runs up, she grabs my neck, and she's saying, did you tell him I forgave him? Did you tell him I forgave him? And I remember taking her hands off my neck, and I just said, you told me to tell him no. And I wondered... How how is her life when all she had to do was release it? It was not going to change if he was going to be executed, but it was going to be a release for her to say, I can move on. 
And there's so many people that have the opportunity to move on, but they pass on it because they want to harbor something. There's people that are still mad and angry with people, and the people don't even remember them. They don't even know. They can't even remember the person. So the person that they're mad at doesn't even remember them. Hmm. And they're living their lives with anger that they have no one to really direct it towards. And that's not God. God would want you to release. And she had that opportunity and passed on it. But I, re- I remember Robbie saying, saying that thing about that white person, me seeing that. And it was, for me, God said, okay, I'm here. Hmm. I'm with you even in the midst of this. Even though it's a bleak situation, watching someone execute it, and then I do it 12 more times, but watching it and understanding that God's there even in, the pro- in that process, He's there with you. And that, that, for me, that was what kept me going, was I knew that God was there with me. Wow, that's powerful. We're talking to the Reverend Earl Smith here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. A couple more questions with the Reverend. I want to ask you, in your book, there's there's an amazing chapter on forgiveness. And obviously, that's such a difficult thing. You know, you just talked about bitterness and anger and this unforgiveness that is still festering in so many people that you work with. And chapter 12 is literally just about forgiveness in your book, Death Row Chaplain. I wrote a book about forgiveness as well called Live to Forgive. So I want to ask you, take us through that chapter a bit and share the personal story of Kevin H. I I was just, as a person who wrote about forgiveness, I was fascinated by it. And I know that's such a deep topic for so many that you come in contact with. Well, Kevin was a kid that I was uh, ministering to. He was in the hole. He was a, he was he was not on the general population. He was in a lockup because he had raped a young girl and you know, brutally, savagely, just hurt her. And he's in prison now. And I'd go by and I'd minister to him and I just sort of speak to him. and kept going and I started to stay a little longer talking to him and. On one occasion, he says, I want Jesus in my life, and I want to be baptized. And I talked with him about what that meant. I talked to him about what it meant to find liberty in Christ and the release that can come. It doesn't make you not what you, it doesn't change what you did, but it changes who you can be in the future. And, and so we talked about it, and he says he wants to get baptized. Well, you're in the hole to get baptized. You have to be shackled and walked over to my chapel to my baptistry, I have to shut the yard down so no one else can be around. And then we're going to get you baptized. And I have to have someone to escort you. And as I was trying to get all of that together, there's this lady that had been on the gun rail. She would always seem to be watching me as I talked to her. And she agreed. She volunteered to escort him over. And... Then he wanted to hear a song, and he couldn't remember the name, the words of it, but there was this song, uh, Blessed Assurance, and he couldn't really remember it. And this officer says, I know it. And she started to sing it for him. And she had tears running down her face as she's singing this song. And I take Kevin, and you hear all the chains and everything sort of clicking as I get him into my baptistry, and I, I baptize him. They escort him back, and the lady comes over to the chapel and says, I need to talk to you. She kind of closes the door, and she says, I need you to know that he's in prison for raping my daughter. Wow. And I asked God if he would give me a chance to find a prison he would be in because I wanted the opportunity to kill him for what he did to my daughter, for ruining her life. 
And she said, I watched as you ministered to him, and it seemed to be that there was a different glow and there was something different about his cell as you would come by. And she says, I don't know why I volunteered to take him over there, but as I watched him be baptized, I realized that like he was new, my daughter could be new as well. And she just said, I need to let you know he's here because he did that to my daughter. And it really hit me that God can be so gracious that he gives you those opportunities to find release, opportunities to let things go, and in the process of letting them go, you find liberty. And she she was not, her daughter was brutally, savagely raped, yet at the same time, she was held hostage by the incident. And God gave her an opportunity to find release. And of all the places to find release, it was in seeing the ministry to this guy. And she assisted in the ministry. That's amazing. I love that story, and I, I love how you tell it in Death Row Chaplain. So good, so good. A couple more questions here uh, with you, Reverend Earl Smith, and we do thank you for your time. I just got to ask you, if you ever hit a point where what you're, because the stories you're telling are so powerful, but they're so, they've got to be so deep and heavy in some ways. Do you ever just feel like, man, I'm done. I can't see, the, I can't deal with this anymore. I mean, you've seen inmates receive the death penalty and people are dying and being treated like they have no hope. Is there ever a point that you were just like, I can't do this anymore. This is just too much. You know, I, I think my last, my last official days at San Quentin was really weird. Uh, had a guy named Tank. And Tank was this guy that had been in the Youth Authority, got out at 16, caught another case after a couple months. And he'd been in the adult system forever. And he's like 45, 46 years old, and his hygiene was horrible. And... Tank started coming around the chapel and he wanted to sing in the choir and the guys didn't want him singing in the choir because he couldn't really sing and he wouldn't wash. He wouldn't take a shower and his clothes were dirty. So I told him, Tank, you're going to have to start doing this and this. So he started taking a shower. His clothes would be clean when he came to the chapel. The guy still didn't want him in the choir. And I remember I told him, if he can't sing, you guys can't sing. And they said, well, what does that mean? I said, if he's not in the choir, there is no choir. They thought I was joking, so I sat the choir down for about six weeks. And then after those six weeks, they said, okay, we'll put him in there. And they put him all the way in the back so he wouldn't be by the mic. I could care less where they put him. The point was he had found a place to be, and he had found something he could do. And his hair, his grooming was different, and his hair would be combed. He'd have cologne on. His clothes would be nice and crisp. And he felt a part, finally. And I'm in my office one afternoon at 4 o'clock. That's the count when all inmates are locked up. And I hear someone yelling, Chap, help me. Chap, help me. And I'm like, who's calling me? It's, it's count time. And I'm in the room with uh, Don Wesley, uh, my clerk, and some other. We had a covenant meeting where I'd have inmates and volunteers come together, and we had a covenant group where we would talk about issues of what it meant to be covenantly related with Christ, and we made agreements and bonds. And so I'm like, who's calling me? I walk out the door, it gets louder. 
when I was in the bathroom, when I walked to the bathroom, I open up the door and Tank falls into my arms and says, chap, don't leave me. I'm holding them, body fluids are coming out, and I'm yelling, man down, man down. Uh, blow the whistle, man down, because I'm holding with both hands, hmm. and I don't want to leave them. And one of the MTAs comes up and said, oh, that shit's Paris. He took somebody's dope, bad dope. Get up from there, Paris. And I'm yelling, no, he's hurt. He's, something's wrong. He's dying. Somebody help him. And he died in my arms. Wow. And they they took him out to the outside hospital and put him on life support for a couple of days. But he was brain dead. He had an aneurysm. And I thought, you know, how can you value life so little that you just say, get up from there? It's not, it's, like he's insignificant. And that was the point that it really hit me that, wow, what are we really doing here? Hmm. What's really going on? So for me, uh, it was at that point that I realized that I, I, could, I couldn't deal with the fact that what they, what, how they treated Tank. And, you know, here was a guy, he, he lived across the bridge. His family was in Richmond. They never visited him. He had nothing. And yet they treated him, and they treated him like he was nothing. And that's that wasn't that wasn't really what I felt I should be doing. And God sort of gave me that example to tell me, okay, it's time for you to move on. Hmm. I got something else for you to do. Now, obviously, we talked about the 49ers and the Warriors and being the team chaplain in the NBA and the NFL. But you're still ministering to inmates today. You're not in San Quentin. But tell us what that looks like for you today. Reverend Smith and what you're doing, you're still, you know, we were talking as we were setting up this interview and you mentioned that you were, you know, going to be in prisons and, and ministering to people there. Tell us about that ministry and how it's still continuing today. Yeah, I have a ministry, uh, my wife and I actually have a ministry called Concerned About Recovery Education Care. And we actually go into the prisons. My wife, actually today, she's in a, uh, a female prison and teaching something called Women incarcerated still enduring regardless, wiser. And we wrote curriculum. We take ex-offenders back in to work with offenders, and we use them as examples of hope as peer counselors. And we train guys on accountability issues. Uh, my wife and I purchased a transition house. We, uh, house, we turned it into a transition house for guys coming out of prison. And... So for us, we I mean, we go into Folsom Prison, Mule Creek, health facility. We, we go to different prisons in California, and the message, and we take players in as well. Uh, December, we went into San Quentin to do a town hall meeting. I had the general manager from the Warriors, Bob Myers. I had a player from the Warriors. I had President Al Guido from the 49ers, and I had players come in. And what I do is I try to give guys in prison the reality that there's hope, and we do it by caring. We show them that we care. So Concerned About Recovery Education Care is the name of the ministry, and we just use it as a way to reach out and give guys a sense of hope because in prison, guys are not going to go to ex-conville. When they get out, they're going to go back to some community. And the question is always for me, do you want them better when they go back or the same or worse? Mm, it's really hope cool. is about being better. Absolutely. And you provided a lot of hope for a lot of people, Reverend Smith. Last question for you. And again, thank you so much for your time. What is, 
We ask this question to all of our guests here on the podcast. I'm curious for you where you are in your season of life right now, what you've been learning from the Lord. What is God teaching you right now? You know, I, I've been reading Isaiah and, you know, when he talks about it, the year the king of Zion died, I heard the Lord high. I, I heard the Lord call and he says, who will I, call, who will I send and who will go? And, I, and what I'm learning right now is, to be still and ensure that I can hear him and be in tune with his voice. Uh, so many times in ministry we do stuff, and we do it because we think it's the right thing to do. Uh, but maybe it's a good thing, maybe it helps people, is it, but is it God's thing? Is it being directed by his voice? And you'll do less, but the things you do will be more significant if you move on the direction of his voice rather than just doing it because you think it's a good thing to do. So for me right now, it's trying to be still enough to hear and ensure that the things I do are from his voice and being directed by him rather than just doing stuff for the sake of doing it. He is the Reverend Earl Smith, author of the book Death Row Chaplain. Man, pick up that book. I'm telling you, it is a powerful read. It will. It's a page turner. I mean, it just is. And it's one of the best books I've read in, in a long time. And he's also the Warriors and the San Francisco 49ers team chaplain. Reverend Earl, thanks so much for being here on the podcast. I really do appreciate your time and just appreciate your service and your faith and just how much you've helped others. So thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity and thank you for the work you do as well. Wow, wasn't that amazing? Uh, listening to the stories of Reverend Earl Smith here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. I mean, that guy has been through, I don't know, he's just been through so much, getting shot, coming back, growing up in gangs, seeing some of the things that he saw in the prison as a chaplain. I just can't imagine. But we do thank him for joining us and sharing his incredible story here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. His book is called Death Row Chaplain. Unbelievable true stories from America's most most notorious prison. Reverend Earl Smith wrote this book. Pick it up. It's amazing. I read it, and then uh, and then we got him on the phone and did this interview, and I was just blown away. So thank you so much to Earl Smith, Golden State Warriors, San Francisco 49ers team chaplain, for joining us here on the podcast. As always, you can reach us via email, jason at sportsspectrum.com. You can also reach us on Twitter at sports underscore spectrum. And you can reach me on Twitter at Jason Romano. And we're also on Instagram and on Facebook, as well as our YouTube page, which carries every single podcast right there. And leave a review on iTunes. That actually helps. If you go to your uh, your Apple Podcast app and you go to iTunes and the area where podcasts are, you can click and leave a review. When you do that, that actually helps get the podcast out and seen by more people. Uh, last week, as we're uh, recording this, we actually reached the top 200 on iTunes uh, Sports Podcast, which was pretty cool. And uh, so the more that you leave reviews, the more it helps get the uh, word out that we're doing this podcast and more people can hear these stories of sports and faith. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time right here at Sports Spectrum. Have a great day.